Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. It is spring. Spring has sprung. Has it? Is it? Is it officially spring Spring is yet? springing up all over the yeah. place. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. It's such... Oh, I love this time of year. It's just gorgeous. And yeah, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it is. We're in that weird time of year, though, where it'll be like three days of 90 degrees and then it'll drop down like this morning I woke up and it was only in the 60s. So I was like, wait a minute, what is this? But yeah, but we're getting there. We are getting there. And yeah, no complaints at all, for sure. I will be complaining within the week about the 90s again. But for right, right. now, I'm really happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perfect. So we'll get right into the episode this week. Uh, for time's sake, again, I don't know how long this one's going to be, but this is another bizarre story. And I know that we say that so many times and we've been doing this show for a while now. So we have had a lot of really wild stories and just really interesting ones with crazy details. But there's always another one that comes along later on that we say the same thing about. So this is another one of those really, really bizarre stories and has a lot of twists and things in it that you don't hear um, in other true crime stories. Crime is full of shocking and confusing and sometimes weird and unexplainable events, and this week's story has all of those things. It's really a wild ride from start to finish, and there are a lot of tiny details, so here we go. 
We're going to start off by talking about a few house fire statistics, and you'll see why these are important statistics as we get into the episode. According to data collected by FEMA, the National Fire Incident Reporting System, and the National Safety Council, house fires cause an average of 2,620 civilian deaths per year, and the majority of these deaths are due to smoke inhalation. One civilian fire-related injury actually occurs every 35 minutes, which is I don't know why I just think of fires as being a lot less common than that, but that's, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a lot every 35 minutes um, for somebody to be injured in a fire in some way. So the top three causes of house fires are cooking, which account for 50% of all house fires. And next would be heating equipment, which accounts for 12.5%. And then the third is electrical malfunction, which accounts for 6.3% of house fires. Of the cooking fires, the highest percentage occur on Thanksgiving Day, and fires that are started by candles or heat sources most commonly happen on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and New Year's Day. Those make sense. I feel like we've all heard that the risk of fires is a lot higher when people have Christmas trees and things like that inside their houses. So some of these house fires seem to be pretty obvious, and you can kind of understand how they started. But here's one cause of house fires that you may not think much about, but it's also relatively common. Fires that were started inside homes as a result of smoking materials, such as cigars and cigarettes, are very, very common. The report I looked at was actually several years old, but this is what I found. During 2012 to 2016, 5% of house fires were started by smoking materials. One in 20 home fires during these years was actually due to smoking, and those fires are responsible for 23% of home fire deaths. So fires that were started by smoking are actually responsible for 23% of home fire deaths. Again, that is a crazy statistic that I was not expecting. So fires of this nature often originated in the living room or in a bedroom. And of course, there are a lot of highly flammable objects in these rooms, like, you know, your bed and your couch and the materials that are used to make those types of things. So these kinds of accidents are tragic and very preventable, but they do still happen with some frequency. In the strange case we're discussing this week, a fire broke out inside of a home in Green Bay, Wisconsin on February 11th, 1998. This was not a typical fire. The whole house did not go up into flames, and the fire actually wasn't even discovered until after it was already extinguished. It actually extinguished itself, so it started and stopped all by itself. A woman by the name of Lola Carter arrived at this home shortly before 11 a.m. to visit her daughter who lived there. And when Lola arrived, when she walked in, she makes the horrific discovery that there had been a fire inside the house. Her daughter, named Sandy, was dead on the couch in the living room after having been engulfed in flames when the couch somehow caught on fire. It appeared as though the fire went out whenever it ran out of burning material from the couch and the rest of the house did not catch on fire. So it was just this one area, this just her couch in her living room, which explains why no one would have, you know, even been aware of this fire to call 911 until her mom arrived. So Lola dialed 911 at 10.59 a.m. and by 11.07, fire investigators respond to the scene. Lola's daughter, Sandy Maloney, was found face down on the couch. Her left arm was folded underneath her, and her right arm was semi-extended down to her right side, kind of if you're laying on the couch, maybe going to sleep, how, how you might be laying down on the couch. She had on pants, but she did not have on a shirt. Investigators said there was a, quote, self-limiting fire originating on the sofa, end quote. Sandy's body was found to have thermal injuries, and her upper body, her torso, 
was mostly intact, but the lower half of her body was badly burned. She had bone and muscle that was exposed and blackened skin. Her front upper body, though, was protected by the fabric of the couch. She was laying on the couch uh, on her chest. There was also blood and fluids in her nose, her mouth, and chin area. As fire investigators are going through the house, they look around and really it's in terrible shape. It's really, really bad. The house is really untidy. There's ashtrays full of old cigarettes, burned and discarded matches on the floor, cigarettes that have been left on furniture in other places and had somehow managed to extinguish themselves before they caught on fire. She has cigarette butts and ashes all over the house. So as they're looking through this house and they're seeing all these, you know, cigarettes out, matches different places, they're thinking that it's very likely that maybe Sandy accidentally started this fire on her couch with a lit cigarette. You know, maybe she fell asleep, she had it in her hand, and it caught on fire, and she passed away, which seems pretty reasonable considering the rest of the house and, you know, the cigarettes that were out, the matches that were everywhere. And during the investigation, they also found out that the fire originated in the couch cushion, which was about four inches away from Sandy's right hand. They could not identify the ignition device, but based on the house and what was going on, they thought it was most likely a lit cigarette. The fire in Sandy's home burned very slowly and was a smoldering fire. And it's this toxic, thick smoke from the synthetic materials in this couch. I can imagine like that's everything is like, don't light anything, you know, like flammable, you know, some materials are just going to burn and be a really big problem. And the fire smoldered until it went out due to a lack of oxygen. So this seems like a pretty open and shut case. She falls asleep. She has a cigarette. Cigarette catches on fire. Unfortunately, she passes away. But there's more to it. So Sandy's mom, Lola, had a different opinion than what the fire investigators found at the scene, even though they had all of this evidence that her death was most likely an accident. What investigators didn't know when they first arrived was that Sandy was actually in the middle of a very rough divorce and custody battle with her husband, John Maloney. Lola said that the moment she saw that her daughter was dead, she just knew that it was John who had set this up. Although one could argue that she was, you know, in shock and she was grieving and this is her daughter that she's just found. Um, You know, some people might say that she's grasping at straws and just looking for somewhere to place the blame, which also makes sense. But the Brown County Arson Task Force actually agreed with Lola and said that there was something that didn't seem quite right about the case. This task force was called in since there was a death involved in this fire. And the Wisconsin Department of Justice Division of Criminal Investigation, or DCI, also conducted an examination from February 13th to February 25th, and their examination found that the fire had been set intentionally. So that is where things kind of get really interesting. The DCI report confirmed that the fire did start on the couch, and they also made notes about the poor condition of the home, and they noted, quote, poor and sloppy housekeeping. They said that when they looked around, they found no food in the freezer, and the only items that were even in the refrigerator were milk, ketchup, and mustard. So things kind of started getting a little weird when the investigators start going around the house more and they see that there is evidence of possibly other um, injuries going on in the house. They discovered blood and traces of blood all over the place and even more of that kind of confusing evidence in the basement. So first, there were small drops of blood that were found in the basement sink and on the toilet in the bathroom. And there was also blood on the wall below the toilet paper dispenser. 
The bathroom was then sprayed with luminol and they found bloodstains in the shower and other areas of the bathroom that weren't visible to the naked eye. Blood was also found in other parts of the basement. There was a rec room in there and they noticed in the rec room what appeared to be a makeshift noose. Um, Inside this room, there was actually a coffee table and it was placed in front of a couch. And on this table, there were two VCRs that were stacked on top of each other. And just in front of the VCRs and the table was this extension cord hanging from an electrical conduit on the ceiling. Mm. So this raised questions immediately about whether or not Sandy was suicidal. More blood was found in the basement laundry room. Um, They actually found a shirt with blood on the collar and on the back, and they found this in the hamper along with some other bloody clothes in the hamper. Up on the first floor of the house where Sandy's body was found, they found more alarming evidence. There were bloody tissues in the bathroom trash can. There were empty vodka bottles under the bathroom sink. One of them just had a small amount in it, but most of them were just empty bottles. And in the living room, they found a pair of shoes that one of the shoes actually had a shoelace missing. And they later found that shoelace tied around the storm door in the basement. And it was tied uh, from the storm door to an inner door that was nearby. A paper napkin was found twisted up, quote, like a wick and stuffed into the backrest of the couch. So they start examining the couch and, you know, they're trying to look for any signs that somebody used any kind of material to make sure that this couch went up in flames. Um, Under the heavily burned part of the couch, they found a book of matches. And they also found bloodstains on the couch, which was really weird because they were actually underneath the couch cushions. So it was as if this blood had gotten on the couch and somebody then just flipped the cushion over to hide the stain. No telling how long ago this would have happened, whether it was, you know, recent or if this was an old stain. So separate fires were found to have allegedly been set on different parts of the couch. There was like four different areas that the DCI report said there were separate fires. It wasn't just one fire that started in this cushion. It was actually multiple places on the couch that were started on fire. So the center section of the couch was the most severely burned part, though. The main floor of the house was covered in heavy soot from the fire. Most of the damage was in the living room, of course, because that's where the couch was. The windows in the living room were cracked from the heat, and several furnishings were damaged and distorted from the heat. There were no signs of forced entry into the house, and all three of the entry doors had no indication of tampering. The front door was actually locked, and as Mandy said before, there was that shoelace that was tied around the storm door and the inner door nearby. But the shoelace on the store had actually been cut. The side main inner door was also locked. The sliding patio door was locked and had a piece of wood in the slider to prevent opening. I used to do that at my old house with a sliding glass Me door. Me too. Yeah, with right? Like <laughs> it's like the something. typical yeah. thing you do. <laughs> exactly. So if someone else had been responsible, they would likely have left out the side door and locked the deadbolt on the storm door from the outside with a key. But who would have a key? And that's when they thought Sandy's soon-to-be ex-husband named John. Police locate John to tell him about Sandy's death. John is questioned by police and says that he hasn't spoken to Sandy in about a week. He had talked to her on February 4th on the phone. But when they asked him what he was doing on February 11th between 6 and 8.30 p.m., John became really impatient and irritated. And as he talks to police, he changes his story multiple times. John admits to them that he does have a key to the storm door, but police never found it and he never turned it over to them. Since John co-owned Sandy's house, he gave written consent for it to be searched. So things get even more interesting here when we find out more about John and Sandy and who they were and how things got to this point. 
And we're going to get into so many more details of this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Warmer weather means we're all scurrying from under our hoodies and itching to get outside. But if your lawn has been as neglected as mine has over the winter, I know I have my work cut out for me. Or at least I did before Sunday lawn care. I am not a lawn person. If I'm being totally honest, I thought lawns just needed water and I hoped for rain. My horrendous lawn is living proof that this isn't true. For me, Sunday Lawns is the answer to all my lawn worries. Sunday Lawns is customized lawn care just for you. I simply went to the website and entered my address. From there, Sunday created a free lawn care analysis personalized to my lawn and took care of all the rest. Just a few days later, my first box from Sunday arrived and contained a soil testing kit and iron booster for my deprived lawn. The instructions were super simple. All I had to do was attach a ready-to-use pouch to my hose and spray my yard. In total, it took me about 15 minutes, and now I just wait to watch my lawn transformation. Sunday uses natural ingredients and could not be easier to use. And since it's customized to your lawn, you know you're on the right track to the perfect lawn. Let Sunday take the guesswork out of growing a greener, more beautiful lawn this spring. Visit GetSunday.com moms to get $20 off your custom lawn plan at checkout. That's $20 off your custom plan at GetSunday.com moms. Remember all the way back to 2007? That was the year I got married, back when the Kardashians debuted on TV and the first iPhone came out. Back in 2007, I had any number of ring choices for my wedding, but my husband had about three. Fast forward to 2021, and the Kardashians are ending their run on TV, and we will soon have the iPhone 30, but there are still almost no cool wedding ring options for men. That is, until Manly Bands. Manly Bands has the perfect bands for everyone, and they're made of just about every type of earthly material imaginable, and even a few from outer space. I ordered one for my husband, and the process could not have been easier. To get started, I just ordered the Manly Ring Sizer from Manly Bands to ensure the ring fit him perfectly as he went about his day. Once I had his size, the fun begins. There are so many materials to choose from, like steel, wood, gold, and meteorites. There are also curated collections, like the Jack Daniels Whiskey Barrel Collection. You heard that right. Manly Bands actually has rings made from whiskey barrels. Ultimately, my husband chose the Journeyman, and he absolutely loves the unique design as well as how comfortable it is to wear. And if that's not enough, Manly Bands can help you be even more creative and help customize bands from scratch by choosing the style, material, inlay, sleeve, and finish. Once you've picked the perfect bands, Manly Bands offers shipping for free worldwide, plus a 30-day exchange policy and a free warranty. To order his Manly Band and get 21% off, plus a free silicone ring, go to manlybands.com moms. That's manlybands.com moms for 21% off. Manly Bands, the best darn rings, period. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about Sandy Maloney and how she had been found dead in her house of an apparent fire that originated on her couch. And sadly, she was in the fire and was killed. But as the investigators started digging more into this, it started to seem like maybe this wasn't just the accident that it appeared to be. And they started looking into Sandy's husband, John. So a little backstory on Sandy and John. Um, they met in high school and they were high school sweethearts. They dated all throughout and really had a great relationship. Sandy grew up in a typical home and her father was a police officer, but he sadly passed away in 1989 at age 58. Sandy and John got married on July 22nd, 1978, and they went on to have three kids together. They had three boys named Matt, Sean, and Aaron, and they were all very close in age. She had all three of these boys between 1985 to 1988. 
Sandy was a really good mom. She was very warm and caring. She was very, very loving and compassionate. She had a strong love for her family and really loved that role. She volunteered at her kids' school, and they were all involved in multiple activities, and so were she and John. They were very involved in what their kids were doing. Sandy actually became a stay-at-home mom after the kids were born. John graduated from Northeast Wisconsin Technical Institute, and by the time they got married, he had lost both of his parents already. After John graduated, he became a detective with the Green Bay Police Department and also worked as an investigator for the Brown County Arson Task Force, which is... It's just one of the many interesting things that yeah. um, come up in this case. So this is the same task force that has been in Sandy's home now and has looked around and um, has given their report. So following the birth of their children, Sandy actually developed some neurological issues. And she started having these problems where the right side of her body from her neck to her arm would go numb and her hands were tingling. She was starting to have dizzy spells and she was really thinking, you know, something is terribly wrong here. So she went to a chiropractor and thought, maybe if I get an adjustment, things will get better. But things actually got worse after she saw the chiropractor and this led her to believe that she might have um, multiple sclerosis. So she made an appointment with a specialist at Mayo Clinic, and they did all this testing, and they diagnosed her not with MS, but she was diagnosed with Arnold Chiari malformation. So usually this is caused by structural defects in the brain and spinal cord. A neurologist prescribed Klonopin for Sandy, and this medication is something that she quickly became addicted to. Friends of Sandy said that she took this clonopin like it was candy, and she eventually started taking other prescription medications. She started realizing that she was having a problem with dependency, and she tried to quit taking these medications, um, cold turkey ones, but this actually induced seizures, so she continued taking her medicine. After her first trip to the emergency room for a seizure, they did a drug screen and she was positive for several substances. Um, she had benzodiazepines, barbiturates, opiates, and um, an antidepressant found in her system. When Sandy wasn't taking prescription pills or she couldn't get her hands on them, she began to use alcohol and she started drinking vodka. She chose vodka because she believed that when she was drinking that particular alcohol, nobody around her could tell that she was drinking. But when she was drinking, she had some pretty bad behavior, like she would start fights with random people, even her own neighbors. And sometimes these fights would become physical. Whoa. Yeah. So which is really sad. It's really sad to hear something like this when you hear about this family that was really thriving. And then she has these medical issues and she gets hooked on the medications that she's prescribed. And you hear this all the time. This is a huge problem um, right. that we have whenever we're treating people, especially with pain and things like that. Um it is very sad to hear that she kind of spiraled and went down this path. Yeah. So while all this is going on, John is working as a police officer and he's caring for the three kids. And he was trying to keep Sandy's addiction kind of quiet, but he was trying to get her help. He alleged that he held two interventions and both of them failed. Sandy's addiction to prescription medication then got even worse. She started asking her friends to provide them if she couldn't get any. And in the end, she even resorted to taking her kids' prescriptions. And this was actually a known problem. So the kids started having to take their medications in front of the pharmacist. But it got to the point where Sandy was so desperate that she would actually instruct her kids to just slip these pills under their tongue and spit them out for her whenever they left the place. Oh, my gosh. So yeah, sad. Very sad. So as things continue to progress, the relationship between Sandy and John 
really started deteriorating. Um, Sandy was drinking and leaving vodka bottles all over the house. She was constantly fighting with everybody. There was a lot of yelling. There was a lot of screaming, slamming doors, just not a very peaceful home environment um, at this time for this family. Yeah. So in May of 1997, John goes out of town to do some police training. During this time while he's away, Sandy gets drunk and she drives and crashes their family van. This was the final straw for John. He had finally had enough. And so he moves out of the home immediately and files for divorce from Sandy the following month. Despite the many problems he's having in his personal life, this looming divorce and now custody issues, John was really lonely and ready to get back in the saddle to start dating again very quickly after he moved out of this home with Sandy. John began dating an IRS criminal investigator named Tracy Hellenbrand. Their relationship moved really quickly, and the couple quickly moved in together and even started talking about starting a family together. They signed a one-year lease on a house that was closer to where John's kids went to school, and this house that they signed this lease for is only about two miles away from where Sandy lives. But about six weeks after John files for divorce, Sandy's mom, Lola, actually calls him and says that Sandy has, quote, lost control in an alcoholic rage, end quote, and tells John he needs to come over there right away and pick up their three boys. So after this incident, John goes to court and he is granted custody of the kids. And Sandy's only allowed to have supervised visitation in public with them. This, of course, losing her husband, losing her kids, causes this further decline in Sandy's mental health and her behavior. At this time, she begins smoking. She was never a smoker, but at this time, she picks up smoking. She starts smoking cigarettes, and she continues this habit of her heavy, heavy drinking. So eventually, it gets to the point where she's at home, and all she's doing is hanging out, taking prescription pills, drinking vodka, and chain smoking. She had pretty much given up on everything. She's lost her kids. She's lost her family. She's lost everything. And she would leave these cigarettes on furniture whenever an ashtray was still nearby. She would just put it out on her furniture. And they found out that Sandy had written five suicide notes and left them around the house. In these notes, she talks about how upset she is, how depressed she is, and she blames John for throwing away this happy life. She says that he's the reason that everything's fallen apart. So John proceeds with the divorce from Sandy, and on February 10th, 1998, John meets with his attorney. They have this pretrial hearing scheduled for the next day, which is February 11th, and that's the day that Sandy was found dead by her mom. John meets with his lawyer, and they talk about this hearing coming up and what they should expect. Sandy's attorney had filed a motion to withdraw it and wanted to delay these divorce proceedings even further. John's lawyer told him, hey, you know, you might end up having to pay this lady alimony, which would be about $700 a month. And John is really upset about this. He does not want to give her money. Uh, he knows how she's living right now, and he just is upset with the idea that he would have to give her money, and she's just living her life this way. And he feels like she's just dragging her feet with this divorce, and he's ready to move on and start a new chapter of his life. So later that same evening, John and his new girlfriend, Tracy, move into their new house. And John and Sandy's three sons were also there with them. They're working at this time to put together the kids' bunk beds. So Tracy gets home late from work, and Tracy and John smoke a cigarette together. And Tracy allegedly at this time, she testifies to this later on, tells John 
she wants to end their relationship. She's saying, you know, you have all this going on with Sandy. It's all getting too complicated. It's taking too long. I want to be done with this. The day they move into this new house. Together. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. So after this conversation, Tracy says, I want to take a nap. So she takes a nap and lays down until about 7 p.m. The couple had planned to go run some moving-related errands after whenever John gets back with his son, Matt. So according to Tracy, John leaves the house at 7.50 p.m. Tracy later says that John comes home about 8.45 p.m., about an hour later, and the two of them go shopping for the next several hours. The next day, John shows up to court for this scheduled pretrial hearing, but Sandy doesn't show up. So the motion she filed to withdraw was denied by the judge, and the final divorce hearing was set for February 20th. It was just before 11 a.m. that morning that Sandy's mom discovers her body. So as we mentioned earlier, Sandy's mom thinks John has something to do with this right off the bat. And now we can kind of see why, the turmoil and things they were going through in their relationship. But the little details in this case continue to conflict with each other. Shortly after Sandy was found dead, her remains were taken for an autopsy. A medical examiner received Sandy's badly burned body and really wasn't given any context about what's happened. All he was given were these remains and, you know, told to determine the cause of death. So the medical examiner found hemorrhaging in the front of Sandy's neck, bleeding on one eye, and minor injuries including scalp lacerations. Interestingly, her blood carbon monoxide levels were basically zero, which was really strange because smoke and soot were present in her airway. Her blood alcohol level at the time of death was 0.25%, and her vitreous alcohol level was 0.40%. And this is normal um, for the vitreous alcohol level to be higher than blood alcohol. So according to this medical examiner, who was Dr. John Tegatz, Sandy's cause of death was not burning or suffocation, but in his opinion, Sandy died from, quote, probable manual strangulation. And he listed her manner of death as a homicide, which is huge whenever you have the medical examiner saying this was a homicide and not an accident. So a funeral was held for Sandy on February 14th, but the investigation into her death was far from being over. Police still had just as many questions really as I do at this point. The initial reports from the Green Bay Fire Department and the Brown County Arson Task Force, which again is the same task force that John Maloney worked for, ruled that the fire was an accident. And as we said before, they felt the evidence of dangerous smoking habits throughout the house proved that the most likely cause of death was from Sandy smoking on her couch. But then, as we also said before, the DCI department concluded that the fire was set intentionally. So DCI is the Division of Criminal Investigation. So these are the investigators that are going to be looking into whether or not Sandy was murdered and not just the cause of the fire, you know, the way the arson task force is looking. Right. They're not their job isn't to look into whether or not there's a murder. They're just trying to find out what happened as far as how the fire was concerned. So the DCI investigators that were looking into the murder aspect of the case found that Sandy's autopsy findings were consistent with homicide and they launched a murder investigation, but they only focused on John Maloney as their suspect. So this is where things start to get even more interesting. The Brown County DA actually recused himself from this case because of the fact that John is an officer in his jurisdiction. A DA from another county, a man by the name of Joseph Paulus, was appointed as a special prosecutor. In May of 1998, Tracy, John's new girlfriend, hires herself an attorney in regards to Sandy's death. 
And Tracy advises John to obtain legal counsel for himself. And so he does that. He hires a man by the name of Gerald Boyle, who happened to be the former boss of Tracy's hired attorney. So his attorney, her attorney, they both know each other really well. In June, about a month later, Tracy's attorney works with a DA to come up with a deal. She will be provided complete immunity if she agrees to help police build a case against John. This seems to come out of nowhere. Nowhere. Yeah. And they want her to wear a recording device whenever she's around him. The couple are still together. And so she tries to get him to admit involvement in Sandy's death on these recordings. Well, he denies it. And in July, John and Tracy go to Vegas together for the weekend. During this time, Tracy is recording their conversations, and she asks him over and over again for hours if he killed Sandy, and John keeps saying no. But then John ends up saying that Sandy died from an accidental fall earlier in the morning that day and says that a candle could have started the fire. In these Vegas recordings, John also says that he went to Sandy's house to talk with her about the divorce. He wanted to persuade her to hurry up and just get it over with. So when police hear on these recordings that he admits to going to Sandy's house that day, they believe they have enough to arrest him. On July 29, 1998, John is taken into custody. He's charged with first-degree murder, arson, and mutilation of a corpse. He quickly files a motion to have these Vegas tapes suppressed from the trial. He says these statements were made involuntarily, and he claimed that the government engaged in outrageous conduct in obtaining these statements and that his right to counsel had been violated. This motion was ultimately denied. So interestingly, the DA sent these Vegas tapes to an editing company to allegedly be cut down for time, but not altered in any other way. The cost of this editing would be $27,000. Whoa. Is that normal? Oh, my gosh. I When I saw that, that it was going to cost that much money to have these tapes edited, I guess, to present to a jury, um, you know, in a nice, pretty little package where it was all the right information was there. But that seems crazy that that's how much they pay for that type of service. Honestly, I feel like my editing skills would be worth about $2.70. Right. But, <laughs> but now I want to look into it because there's some right? money to be made there. My goodness. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a lot. I'm sure, you know, they have contracts and stuff. But yeah, that seems like a lot of money for what I would think would be a pretty easy thing to do if you're just yeah. like, I need this time from this time pulled and this time and this time to be pulled. That's I could do that in the afternoon. So uh, (laughs) I'll send him my invoice. So later, he sends a letter to the editing company noting that he had replaced, modified, or added a few new excerpts, and he wanted them included in this final edit. So what we sent you, great, but I have a few more things to add. And the editor leaves a note saying that some of these new clips that he receives are, quote, so short that they seem choppy, end quote. That's because you got to hire a professional editor like me. I can make it kind of (laughs) choppy. So uh, John's trial begins on February 8th. And although we've discussed so much about this case, you won't even believe how much more there is left. And we will get right back into that after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Running out to the store is less than ideal lately, and what's worse than forgetting something on your list? Having to head back out there for multiple trips just to get those everyday items you need around the house. 
Grove Collaborative wants to help by making shopping for those home essentials simple and convenient. Grove takes all the guesswork out of going green. You can browse their easy-to-use site for literally thousands of home, beauty, and personal care products that you can rest assured knowing are all guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and the planet. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home, beauty, plus personal care products directly to you. Products like Grove Co.'s glass straws that make the perfect replacement for the old plastic straws and the Badger Bomb SPF 40 Kids Clear Sports Sunscreen. We're in Florida and sunscreen is a complete necessity and I'm so excited to use this for my kids because it doesn't contain all those chemicals that I can't even begin to pronounce like some other brands. Grove saves me so much time by having everything I need all in one easy to find place, saving me from having to go to multiple stores or search endlessly online to find all the natural goods I want for myself and my family. Do what we did and join over 2 million households who have trusted Grove Collaborative to make their homes happier and healthier. Plus, with Grove, shipping is fast and free on your first order. Making the switch to natural products has never been easier. For a limited time, when our listeners go to grove.co slash mm, you will get to choose a free gift with your first order of $30 or more. But you have to use our special code. Go to grove.co slash mm to get your exclusive offer. That's grove.co slash mm. I'm a creature of comfort, which means as often as I can, I'll be hanging out in my sweats and my socks. But wouldn't it be great if you could have that same comfortable feeling of sweats, but in a bra? Now you can with 3rd Love. That's because 3rd Love designers created their bras to fit you, not the other way around. If you aren't sure where to start with finding a bra, how about the 3rd Love Fitting Room Quiz? It's the new and improved version of the quiz that we've taken and loved. The fitting room quiz is basically a personal shopper, but for your boobs. The quiz doesn't just focus on size, but breast shape, your current fit issues, plus your personal style, so you can find bras and underwear that are the perfect fit and look for you. Comfort is always number one for me, which is why I'm so excited that 3rd Love has launched their Lounge by 3rd Love line. My personal aesthetic is extreme comfort while still looking put together, and 3rd Love knocks it out of the park with their Lounge line. 3rd Love knows your one true fit is out there, so right now they're offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash murder for 20% off today. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing Dash Pass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With Dash Pass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, Dash Pass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With Dash Pass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. 
I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. And now back to the episode. So back to this wild story. Um, right before we took the break, we were just about to get into how John was going to trial for the murder of his uh, soon-to-be ex-wife, Sandy Maloney. The prosecution's case was that Sandy was in the way of John's new relationship with Tracy, and he was tired of Sandy dragging out their divorce. And so he was becoming really stressed out. He was in debt, and he was ready to just get all of this over with. Prosecutors allege that John went to Sandy's house between 6 to 8 p.m. that day to make sure that she would be at the court hearing the following morning. And then an argument ensued, and John hit her over the head with a blunt object, and blood got on her shirt. So this is all what the prosecution is alleging in the trial. Um, They said that John then panicked and strangled Sandy by putting his knee on her while she was already on the couch. And they allege that he then removed her shirt that had blood on it and put it in the hamper in the basement. And as we said, Sandy was found without a shirt on. Um, She did have pants on but did not have a shirt. So they also claim that John then set fire to the couch to hide the evidence. And he was sure to leave behind all these half-smoked cigarettes to make it look like it was an accident. And further, the prosecution alleged that Tracy was going to leave John if his divorce, you know, wasn't complete soon and that this was a motive for John to commit this murder. John, however, rebuked this entire theory. He said it was pretty preposterous and just straight up impossible. Tracy said that she last saw him at their home at about 7.50 p.m. right before he went to pick up his son from batting practice. And John was home at 8.45, which was just under an hour later. So John basically was saying that there was simply no way he could have done what the prosecution was alleging because he didn't have time to do all of that. He would have had to have driven over to Sandy's house, forced his way inside, had this argument with her, hit her, strangled her, taken off her clothes and, you know, basically chain smoked a pack of cigarettes in the house while leaving them lit everywhere. He would have had to have poured vodka all over the place, lit the couch on fire, locked all the doors, including the storm door, which, as we said, he did have a key for. Um, But then he would have to do all that and be back home with his son that he picked up from practice by 845. So personally, I can see where John is like, hey, how could I have done all this on the time that you said I did? There's just no way. So still prosecutors allege that the divorce was the driving force behind why John wanted Sandy dead. And they played those Las Vegas recordings that Tracy secretly took for the jury. They also played video footage of the crime scene, including a scan over Tracy's remains on the couch. And this ended up being a really big ordeal in the trial. The video that they showed the jury had two different instances where they showed Sandy's body. And the court ruled that The prosecution was allowed to show only one of the scans over her body, but they said that showing this disturbing image a second time was not necessary because it wouldn't show the jury anything that they didn't see the first time. 
So while they were viewing the part um, with the first look at Sandy's remains, they accidentally saw the beginning of the second look, but the video was stopped before they could see her remains again completely. And John's attorney jumped on this and said, um, you know, that wasn't supposed to be allowed. So he actually motioned for a mistrial due to the fact that the jury was, you know, shown parts of this video that they weren't supposed to see. But the court actually denied the motion for the mistrial and said that the second scan over the remains was really the same as the first. So it wouldn't have had any effect on the jury or their decision. But John's attorney kind of kept this in his back pocket for later use. Of course, you know, things like this are what come up on appeal and all that. So his attorney said, you know, we didn't get it this time, but we're going to use this again. Right. The defense has several witnesses that testify for them. Sandy's mom, Lola, testified that she spoke on the phone with Sandy multiple times on the night of February 10th, the night before she died. Sandy told her mom that John was supposed to bring the kids over around 6 o'clock, and Lola talks to her around 6.03, and Sandy says John still hasn't arrived with the kids. Lola then tries calling Sandy again at 8.26, but got the answering machine. And the next morning is whenever she goes to her house and finds Sandy dead. Sandy's friend Lynn also testifies to trying to call Sandy that evening. She says that every time she called, she got a busy signal, but finally at 7.35, she was able to leave a message on the machine. And what's really interesting about this, and I still don't understand how things work, like things like the internet or phones, and this really threw me for a loop, but when police respond to the scene, they notice that the telephone receiver is off the hook. But what's even more strange, even though it's off the hook, it actually rings while they're there. And a rep for the manufacturer of the phone testifies that if the receiver's off the hook, any caller gets a busy signal. So that adds up to whenever her friend was calling. But when the phone is exposed to extreme heat, the mechanism inside melts, which then allows the phone to ring. So weird. Yeah, that's so weird to me that they're like, oh, yeah, no, that's a thing. When it gets too hot, you'll be able to still call. Like, (laughs) I don't get that at all. So Sandy's own psychiatrist also testifies for the prosecution. Dr. John Stam said that back in June of 1996, Sandy confides in him that John had physically and emotionally abused her for years. And soon after that, she shows up to one of her sessions and has bruises on her face and her arm and tells the psychiatrist that John was the one that inflicted these injuries on her. A year later, in June of 1997, Sandy tells Dr. Stam that John had threatened to kill her. So Tracy, John's girlfriend not anymore. Uh, she testifies as well in the in the case. So she tells them the accounts of that evening. She says that she wanted to end the relationship. This divorce was taking too long. It was too messy. She just wanted to be done with it. And after that conversation, he leaves at 752 to go pick up his son and he gets back at 845. I'd be interested to know what like that map is. Like what is that time um, between right. that house and that? Would that make even make sense? Um, that it took him so long. So she said that after he returned home with his son, they go shopping. But when they go back home, John is acting really weird and he's pacing back and forth in the house. And she just thought it was really bizarre. She also said that he smelled like he had been in a musty basement or a cellar. And um, she actually took a polygraph test. But since polygraphs are not admissible in Wisconsin trials, the jury was not allowed to hear the results of those. Hmm. So John's defense team focused on two main strategies. The first one was to convince the jury that the investigative team focused on John as the only suspect and never considered anyone else. And their second strategy was to convince the jury that it was actually John's girlfriend, Tracy, who committed the murder. 
John claims that his defense did not hire any forensic experts to dispute any of the evidence that the prosecution had. In one example, a fire investigator was asked by the defense to review the case before the trial, but the defense only gave the investigator the DCI report and a few photos of the crime scene, so he couldn't really make a proper analysis. But if he'd known everything, John's supporters, and himself, of course, believe that this investigator would have concluded that the fire and death were both accidental. According to John, his defense was very weak, so it's not very surprising that once the jury heard all of the evidence, they found that John was guilty on all counts that he was accused of. On April 23, 1999, John was sentenced to life in prison for the murder charge, and he was given 40 years for the arson and 10 years for mutilation of a corpse. But not so fast. The story actually does not quite end there. John filed for post-conviction relief right away, which was denied, and so his next step was to, of course, appeal his conviction, and he also appealed the order that was denying the motion for post-conviction relief. The grounds that he listed for his appeal, um, there were several of them, so we'll just quickly go through them. The first was that there was not enough evidence to convict him. Two, trial court should not have admitted Sandy's statements to her psychiatrist because they were irrelevant. Number three, the trial court should have ordered mistrial after the jury saw that second view of Sandy's body on the tapes that they were shown. Number four, the court should have given John the chance to question Tracy about the circumstances of her polygraph. Five, the court should have given the phallus in uno jury instruction. And six, the government engaged in misconduct. So the court took their time, um, but they did respond in September of 2000. And they found that, number one, there was enough evidence to convict John. Number two, prior threats and abuse are absolutely relevant in a homicide case. So they were saying that the psychiatrist's testimony was definitely admissible. Right. I don't know how they were thinking they were going to appeal on that. That because, one, yeah. yeah. It's obviously, yeah, you know. Um, so number three, the jury being shown the second scan of the body was no different than showing the first, which is what the first judge said. Number four, the court was in the right to not allow the jury to hear about Tracy's polygraph. Number five, the jury did not need that special instruction. And number six, the government did not engage in any misconduct. Um, the court then reaffirmed his conviction and his sentence. So at this point, John hires new lawyers. They file another motion for post-conviction relief, and this is also denied. They appeal to the Court of Appeals on grounds of ineffective counsel. He says that his counsel should have done more. They should have challenged that admissibility of the Vegas recordings, and they said it was against Wisconsin's electronic surveillance control law. In June of 2004, that appeal was denied. But John and his team kept trying. They alleged that certain officers and investigators involved in the case were biased against John. John eventually appealed to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, but even they affirmed his conviction and sentence. So since John has been convicted and behind bars, a lot more information has come out that really makes you question even more what happened. In 2002, nearly three years after John was found guilty, it came out that that special prosecutor they used, Paulus, lost the primary for re-election after it came out that he engaged in sexual misconduct in his office. Paulus could not find a job, so the defense attorney that had represented John in his trial hired Paulus as a partner at his firm. In 2004, Paulus was convicted of 22 counts of bribery and tax evasion. He pleaded guilty to taking $48,000 to fix 22 cases from June of 1998 to June of 2000. Wow. I know. Okay, so 22 cases. Let's just look at the math on that. What is he taking, like $2,000 per case to, to do this? Isn't that insane wow. that you would 
yeah. literally ruin somebody's life, change everything for $2,000 multiple times. That's That blows my mind. That truly blows my mind. So he is sentenced to just five years in prison for all of that, for fixing 22 cases. I, I don't understand. I don't understand at all. So obviously, based on this, there are fears that Paulus botched John Maloney's investigation. John believes that Paulus wanted to convict a police officer to make himself look good and eventually run for attorney general. I actually get that line of thinking. That makes a lot of sense to yeah. me. Yeah. So in March of 2004, Wisconsin Department of Justice launched an independent investigation. Almost a year later, they released a report confirming that Sandy was murdered. But it's kind of odd because two years earlier in 2002, a forensic pathologist named Dr. James Dibden conducted a review into Sandy's death. And he concluded the previous conclusion that Sandy died by strangulation, quote, could not be sustained, end quote, because number one, the hemorrhaging in her neck, which was quite small, according to this doctor, and the bleeding in her eyelid were not from physical assault. They were from rigor mortis. She was face down, so the blood pooled down there. He also said that the damage to Sandy's skin and body made it impossible to adequately examine and determine where these marks and hemorrhages were coming from. She's burned. How do you even see this? Right. Yeah. And they also said that um, the ceiling above her was burned and it was like actually falling, like parts of the ceiling were falling onto her. Oh, and so that was also part of it. Like they don't know where these minor injuries and scrapes came from. It could have come from anything inside the house. Wow. Yeah. And as we mentioned before, Sandy had a negative carbon monoxide level, which Dr. Dibden said meant that she was dead before the fire. He noted that Sandy's vitreous alcohol level was 0.40%, as we mentioned before, and this is potentially a lethal alcohol level. High alcohol doesn't always kill someone immediately, but it induces an irreversible coma. The body can still process the alcohol while the person is still alive. So the theory was that Sandy could have become so intoxicated that she reached that lethal level and that she lost consciousness while smoking a cigarette, which then falls on the couch and starts the fire, all while she's in this alcohol-induced coma. This theory is supported by the fact that there was smoke and soot in her airway, indicating that she was still breathing during the fire, so she wasn't dead when it started. However, her body would continue to process the carbon monoxide for as long as her heart was beating and she was breathing. So Dr. Dibden believed that her body could have eliminated the carbon monoxide before her heart and respiration stopped. He said she could have died from either a combination of alcohol and carbon monoxide poisoning or from the alcohol alone. Other injuries on Sandy were minor and could have been self-sustained from bumping and falling into things while intoxicated. All of it makes a lot of sense whenever you hear yeah. um, really both sides. I feel like all of the reports, you can see how everybody came to the conclusions they came to yep. in this case, but it's just, there's so many questions. So the same year that this report was produced on July 4th, 2002, another doctor, Dr. James Munger, um, he was a fire and explosive investigator, and he released a report of expert opinions. This doctor was hired to review the case and determine if Sandy was murdered or not. Um, and he formulated 12 different opinions, and we're not going to discuss them all in great detail. Some of them were very short. Um, most of them are actually very short. So we'll go through the important ones that he came up with. In one of the opinions, he stated that the analysis conducted by the experts and the murder hypothesis they came up with was junk science, which, oof, gosh, that's <laughs> that's not a, something you want another expert to say right. um, about, you know, about your work. Um, but he said that the fire did originate in the living room. 
He said that the burn patterns under and adjacent to the sofa were fully consistent with the melting and burning of the foam material on the couch. He said that the ignition source was smoking materials and noted that, quote, the careless smoking habits of Sandy are unquestionably documented by the photographic evidence, end quote. He said there is no scientifically valid evidence of any type of accelerant being used in the fire. So there was no gasoline or anything that was like intentionally put there to make sure that the couch caught on fire. Um, He said that her level of intoxication and her position on the couch are consistent with her being unconscious before the fire started. And he also gave um, his opinion on the electrical cord fastened like a noose, as we said, in the basement and said that this was clear evidence that Sandy had tried to take her own life before the fire incident. Dr. Munder also alleged that as an expert in the field, which John Maloney was, as we said, he worked for the fire investigation team. um, John would pretty much know how to make a better fire and how to hide the evidence a lot better. You know, he's a police officer and he also specializes in this fire investigation team. So this doctor was saying that if John had been the one to commit this crime, he would have taken steps to ensure proper ventilation to make sure that the fire actually grew and included the entire house structure and everything inside and not just the couch and didn't go, you know, put itself out. And and as somebody who knows about that stuff, he would know, you know, how to make sure that happened. Um, As an investigator himself, John would also know that a fire would not be able to totally conceal a death that happened before the fire. So fire doesn't always cover up a murder. So further, he said that John would never take Sandy's bloody shirt off and move it downstairs. Otherwise, he would have to burn. um, He would have to set more fires in the basement. You know, if he would never take off the bloody shirt, which is evidence, and then put it somewhere where anyone could find it. So that does make you think, like, did John have anything to do with this or did he not? Um, So I don't know. So where are they now? John and Sandy's boys were raised by John's sister, Jenny. And John is incarcerated at the Dodge Correctional Institution in Des Pere, Wisconsin. I'm really going out on a limb there. I think that's how that one's pronounced. But let me know if I got it wrong. I'm sure you will. (laughs) (laughs) And he is eligible for parole in 2024. He will be 67 years old. John now has a fiance, a woman by the name of Kimberly, and she started a change.org petition to the governor, the state senate, and the state house to free John. The petition states that Prosecutor Paulus, quote, transformed the sad death of a suicidal alcoholic addict into a media-driven murder and an arson case which turned the justice system upside down, end quote. As of February 24th, 2021, there are 3,873 out of the 5,000 signatures they wanted. There's also a website with a ton of information about this case, and it was sourced for this episode. It's john-maloney.org, and it's all about John's innocence. The website says that he needs legal representation, but he does not have any money. The family's finances were all wiped out because of this, and they welcome donations. There's also a book called Full Circle that discusses this case and its many, many details at length. What do you think, Melissa? Oh my gosh, Mandy. (laughs) It's one of those that I'm just, I can go back and forth in my mind the whole time. I can go, there are little pieces from each side that I can see, um, I can see how, like you were saying, how, how they could arrive to their opinions. I don't know. I, I feel like sometimes the most obvious is the most likely, um, and it just seemed like from the house, from things that were going on, that it's likely that, you know, it could have been a complete accident. And um, 
I kind of feel like I'd want to know even more uh, before giving a, an official opinion, but I kind of am right. leaning that way where I think it could have been a complete accident. But I say that knowing that like her family believes that that's not the case. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be insensitive to right. what they feel, but there's a possibility that an innocent person is in jail. Yeah, no, I totally agree um, with you on that. And it is hard because you don't want to um, offend the family or, you know, if they feel strongly the other direction, you don't want to discredit their feelings and their thoughts on the matter. Um, But like you said, I do, I I feel like in this case, given the history, I kind of am thinking it just happened at a really unfortunate time when they were in the middle of this divorce. And we talk about that all the time about how um, that would be like something that would happen to me. Like somebody I know will die and it will just be the weirdest circumstances and it will look like I did it. And like, you know, it's just, it's that kind of stuff happens though, you know, where it's almost like a coincidental thing, but it's like, there's so much to it that like you could point to somebody being guilty. But in this case, I think the most likely thing that happened was basically what, um, we said at the end here that she, drank and um sadly you know it was an accident she accidentally lit the couch on fire um and it's just a really sad case a really sad story and really sad for john if that is the truth and he has spent time in jail he is as we said going to be eligible for parole soon but um yeah it always it breaks my heart thinking about people who are innocent that have spent you know so many years in in prison oh yeah we Um, know what happens yeah so this is Yeah. Yeah. So this is just one of those stories, though. I mean, it makes you it really does make you think um, and think about the way that our justice system works and the way we handle these kind of things. Um, But I think that some of the information that came out about the special prosecutor after the fact, it doesn't really look good for um, for them. You know, it doesn't really make it it doesn't make me believe that they were on the right track there with that. Whenever you find out that they've fixed cases and all that kind of thing, that really, truly blows my mind how quickly somebody would for so little money, not that there should be a, a number, like a dollar amount where it's like, okay, you should fix a case for $100,000. Yeah, yeah, do it. But if they paid, what, over $200,000 for editing and this guy's getting $2,000 to fix a case, I don't understand right. it. It doesn't, the math does not make sense on that. I want to read more about it. I definitely want to check out the website a little bit more. And um, I don't know. I, I I have a lot of, I have a lot of questions still, I think. I still have a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, this was, this was really uh, a, a terrible, terrible story. But um, yeah, I don't, I, there's nowhere to go from there. I don't know what to say. No, <laughs> I know. All right. So then I think this is a good time to move <laughs> into our last thing before we go for the week. And um, this week we're going to do just a fun little one where, um, what do you, what did you call it, Melissa? superlatives superlatives I think we may have done something similar to this once before um but somebody suggested this and I thought it was fun so hopefully hopefully it's fun I have a few questions we're going to ask each other like which one of us is most likely to yada 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 and then we'll kind of go from there and see what we think so Melissa do you want to go first Ooh, okay um yes I will okay Mandy who is of us is the most likely to I'll start easy get lost I'm going to say that's you. (laughs) Hurtful, but yes, absolutely. (laughs) I won't even go like, even if I am somewhere where I'm like pretty sure where I know where I'm going, I have to go back the exact same way. I can't, don't give me a shortcut. It's not going to help me. I don't know where I'm going. (laughs) I will go the long way every single time. And you know, I don't like making left-hand turns. So the amount of 
<laughs> circles I will go in to not make a left-hand <laughs> turn. It's like I've been driving for more than half my life, and I'm still, like, not confident in not having a, a green arrow. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. No, I have a pretty good sense of direction, and if I've been somewhere once, I will just remember how to get there, you know, forever. Oh, no. I don't have mm-hmm. to keep looking up directions and all that. But I do have the same thing, like you said, like, if – I mean – if I go down a street and there's like a detour and they like send me off, then I start panicking. If I, I have to go a different way and like I don't have a choice and I wasn't prepared for that, then I start getting a little, I feeling like I have no idea what's going on or where I am. And that's when Imagine I have to that break all out the my time. GPS. Yeah. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> okay. All right. So here's my first one. Um, who of us is the most likely to accidentally walk into a glass door? Ooh. Um, is it rude to say you? No, I think it is me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually done it several times um, just over my life. I've done it as a kid. I've done it a couple of times as an adult. And there is honestly nothing worse than walking into a door that you thought was open. Um, my yeah. grandmother always, she's very clean and like her windows are always spotless and she doesn't have any pets. And like, see at my house, I don't do it because I can see the fingerprints of my kids hands all over. Yeah, the door. Yeah. <laughs> so I know that it's closed, but, um, I've done it at my grandmother's house several times because it looks like the door is wide open. The glass is so clean and no scratches and just clear. And right. I do it all the time. Yeah. So I would say that's it. me. If it makes you feel better, <laughs> I can never judge how high something is above me. So even at, you know, 37 years later, I don't remember how tall I am. And I'm forever standing up and just knocking myself in the head with things that like I should know by now that, you know, I can't fit my head under things. Yeah. <laughs> nope. I get real cocky. I act like a little five foot two tiny little thing and stand <laughs> up and knock myself out. All right, Mandy. My next one is... Okay, well, I, I know the answer to this already. Who is the most likely to get into a van with the promise of puppies? I mean, oh, this is obvious. It's obviously me. Yeah, obviously <laughs> you. I would call and report them. So right. that's my <laughs> my. Country. I can't even imagine how quickly we would see a van full of puppies and you would like be in there, slam the door shut. They'd have you in cuffs and you'd be like, yeah, uh, where are the puppies? Where are the puppies? I Let totally would. I know. So yeah, so this habit of just going with strangers who have animals. It's a, it's a thing that people in my family have done. That's actually how my uh, mom got one of the dogs that she has. So, um, I was really young. My sister was very young and, uh, my aunt was in town with my cousins and we were all outside in the neighborhood playing and the ice cream truck came by. And, um, we always used to get ice cream from this ice cream truck. But on this day, the guy said, Hey, I have this litter of puppies. Do you kids want to come see? Well, we all went with this man um, because we knew the ice cream man that always came by. And thankfully, there really was puppies. And that is how uh, my mom got one of the dogs that my sister was her dog kind of growing up. But yeah, it was from going with a stranger who said they had puppies and they actually did. <laughs> what on earth? That sounds like the most here's how you get murdered plot I've ever heard to go with the oh, ice 100%. cream man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I had an uncle that used to be an ice cream man. That is one of the worst humans that I've ever met in my entire life. I would not right. <laughs> even buy ice cream from that guy. Not that all I not all ice cream <laughs> men, but no. Right. Oh my gosh, that's terrifying. Well, I'm glad you got the dog, I guess. And you're alive. Yeah. More importantly. All right, I think you're next. Which what do you got? Which one of us is the most likely to work as a Walmart greeter when we retire? You, a hundred percent. Not me. What? No. What? What? No, that's totally not me. Walmart is like 
the most hated place on the planet for me. There's no way I'm working there as a greeter or any other way. I don't even like to go there as a shopper. I'm sorry. You think I want to <laughs> greet people? But you're so friendly. I think you would be like the best. I think you would be the best Walmart greeter. Yeah, but it would be, I would hate the entire experience. It would be horrific for me. <laughs> I would do so well. They would ask me to come on weekends. And then because I can't say no, I would also do weekends. And next thing you know, I'm working there 24-7, living living at Walmart in one of their tents that are popped up and just greeting people. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think I'm getting hives. That is making me so anxious. I feel like now having to tell myself, please don't ever become a Walmart greeter. I love them. I think they're so great, but no, absolutely not. But you're, ugh, I hate this. This is terrible. Okay. <laughs> Um, here's my next one or my last one. I don't know. So, uh, Mandy, which one of us is most likely to accidentally become a meme? Oh, probably me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Probably me because you are not an internet risk taker the way that I can be sometimes. Um, and so I feel like I am definitely more likely to say something that would get turned into a meme or yes, or I would, I don't know. I I mostly met my dumb face. Like I make very weird like I can see myself getting hit in the face with a ball and that being a meme, those kind of things. But you're right. Oh, I yeah. think we could both be for different reasons. Me right. because yeah. of terrible luck. You because of things you say. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is a hundred percent accurate. <laughs> okay. All right. This one is kind of along the same lines. Um, and this will be my last one too. It'll be a good place to end it. So which one of us is most likely to stay up late arguing with internet trolls? A hundred percent you. I have only gotten on to like one person in my entire life. Like it was about food allergies. Somebody saying like, if you have a food allergy, you should just die. Basically, they were just like, it doesn't matter. That's how things are weeded out. My son has food allergies. And that's the only time I've gone after somebody on the internet. And not even I was like, how dare you? And that was where I ended. (laughs) But you 100%, you would, I, I would be terrified to get into a, a, I would <laughs> troll shit. I've had to learn to really rein it in. I'd for sure be the most likely to, between the oh two of gosh. us to do that. Well, I think based on experience, like this isn't even a who's the most likely. It's who has done this. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, Yeah. I don't do it now. And the internet is a very scary place now. So I I don't even, um, I don't go and argue with anybody online because no matter what you do, you're always wrong. And it just turns into a whole thing. I'm good with that. I I know I'm wrong with everything. So I'm, yeah. yeah, Okay. Yeah. I just post pictures of my dog and funny, funny things I see. And that's pretty much all. That's the extent of my social media life anymore because yeah. All right, Melissa. So I think that was good um, this week. And we've done plenty of damage here with the end of our uh, of the episode with the last thing before we go. Now that we've both kind of well, they were pretty friendly. I kept my questions nice enough so that we wouldn't have to we wouldn't have to point fingers at each other for like actual terrible things. You know, you know what I'm saying? I love it. I love just letting you go. Yep. (laughs) Truly my favorite thing. favorite pastime. I know you do, you do that to me very often. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we're going to get out of here and we will see you guys back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the moms and murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. 
You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.